0: You are my sunshine. We did that just for you all Southerners, okay? <laughs> you like that? Yeah, yeah, it's good. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, go to Deuteronomy. Go to Deuteronomy, you can just go to chapter 1. We're going to kind of be a little all over the place this morning. A renovation. Mitch preaches for like fifteen minutes um, at East Side. Fifteen, right? Fifteen minutes. Thirty. Thirty. Uh, 30. <laughs> so they've been giving me a hard time for preaching. Like, I think the record's like eighty-two. So <laughs> here, <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily a good thing, except for maybe the long suffering of our people <laughs> through that. Uh, I I hope we will not be 82 minutes this morning. That's not the plan. Uh, uh, So, here we are, nine weeks in, the series on the Pentateuch. Pentateuch is the Greek word, really, for the law, the first five books of the Bible, Moses' books, uh, uh, the Hebrew word is the Torah. So We're talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and now, finally, Deuteronomy. Our typical style of teaching around here is we tend to take a very short passage, you know, three, four verses, ten verses, something like that, and, and we do what we call expository teaching. So we want the content and the intent of the passage to determine the content and the intent of the sermon. So it's not about what's some cool things that the speaker has to say, and then I want to find like 15 verses to support it, but it's no, what is the passage really have to say, because we don't believe that I or Rusty or anybody else that preaches here has really anything of value, at least compared to what the Word of God has to say. So I might have some good wisdom that might be helpful in your life, but the Word of God comes with a promise to sanctify you. And so why would we spend an hour giving you a bunch of good thoughts from Matt when we could spend an hour giving you the words of God? So, our typical method of doing that is we tend to work through smaller passages of Scripture. But then, every once in a while, we take a break from doing that to work through bigger chunks of Scripture. Um, Still expositorily in nature, meaning still the content and intent of the the passage is going to determine the content and intent of the sermon, but it's just going to be on a broader scale. Uh, We're not going to... pastor that, that I enjoy, Mark Dever, he talks about flying at different altitudes. Here we're flying really high above the text so that we can kind of see the, the bigger landscape. We can take more of the picture in at once. As we're typically, you know, we're flying like a little crop duster, you know, like real close to the crops where you, you can just see some of the field, you know. And uh, so I, I know you all in the South can relate crop dusting, right? Can you do that? Okay. Up here we can because of the movie Planes. If you have kids, um, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna lay off the the s- South jokes, but I do have to say this last thing. They they were making fun of our grass up here. Someone was making fun of our grass because I made fun of their pine straw in in the South. See, they have pine trees everywhere. They don't have grass. They have pine straw, and they actually they they have like a cash crop in their front yard. You know, because they. can go up and like bundle it up, right? And sell it off. I'm like, man, if I could bundle up my grass clippings and sell that off, particularly with my septic tank and now having two septic tanks in the backyard, that grass grows like crazy. So if we could sell that, we would be good. Sorry, I'll let that sink in. No pun intended. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Deuteronomy. So it's kind of, Give us a little bit of how we tend to do things for, for visitors and so on and so forth. <clears throat> Let me review for us real quick, very quickly where we've been at in Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, and then now Deuteronomy. So I'm just going to kind of catch us up real super quick. So talk about an overview. Here's an overview. In Genesis, we saw that God uses His creation to display His character. God uses His His creation to display His character. That God is holy. We saw that in that display of His character, we see that God is holy. And that God will judge sin. That is characteristic of God. We see it painted in the scriptures. He is holy and He will judge sin. Yet in the midst of His holiness, we saw God is merciful. We see that in the garden. We see that with the promise to crush Satan eventually, immediately after the fall. Immediately after the unrighteousness of of God's people, Adam and Eve. We see the promise, the mercy that God would one day crush the head of Satan. And that this, this, this separation from God would be removed once again. That God would not burn in anger towards his people forever. Then we see God, again in Genesis, so that God's sovereignty provides for the ability for him to reconcile this situation. That, that there is a, a brokenness between God and God's people, but he might have all the greatest ideas in the world, but if he cannot, if he does not have the power, the ability, the sovereignty to reconcile, then it's just nothing more than a couple good ideas. But we see early on that God has the sovereignty to reconcile the situation. We also see that God uses His chosen children to display His character. So not just through His creation, like in general, uh, uh, but also through His created people, that God displays His character in His people. And we particularly see that one really fleshed out as we work through Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and, of course, now Deuteronomy, that God will display who He is through His people. That's part of the importance for all the instruction, all the commandments, all the statutes, so that His people would display Him, that God would dwell among His people and then that, through that, and then obeying His commandments and statutes, that His people would display the character of God. And then we saw in Genesis that man's response to that must be obedience and faith, that That man must respond in obedience and faith. Then we saw in Exodus, and again, big themes that we saw in Exodus, that God alone works sovereignly. He's the only sovereign one. He's the only one that works independent of everyone else and everything else. And He is not dependent on anything, including His people. He is sovereign and will accomplish His purposes. We saw that sovereignty displayed in the good of Moses and the bad of Pharaoh. So when we look back at the story of Moses and uh, Pharaoh and the Exodus and all that, well, You see it's not God worked sovereignly through Moses to convince Pharaoh to do what he wanted Pharaoh to do. No God worked sovereignly in Moses and worked just as equally in his, was just as equal in his sovereignty in Pharaoh as well. We see that particularly evidenced as he hardens the heart of Pharaoh. He sovereignly works in Pharaoh just as he sovereignly works in Moses. We tend to think of God, well, he just sovereignly works in the good, and then the bad's kind of out of his control, and so he has to work extra hard in the good to kind of offset the bad. No, no, God is sovereign over both. We see that, and we saw that in Exodus. <clears throat> We also saw in Exodus that he, his sovereignty, we see his sovereignty as he begins to set apart a people for himself. And again, this will be a theme, the setting apart of a people for himself, that he would dwell in their presence, is a theme that carries all throughout Scripture into the New Testament, even to this day. Then in the Leviticus, we saw that we are sinners and we should offer sacrifices. Uh, so next week, we're going to have an all—I'm just kidding— uh, we're not going to have an altar. Uh, you don't need to bring a lamb. Uh, he already died. But we saw that we are sinners and that there are sacrifices that have to be paid, that have to be done. You know, we talked about what that is, and there's been no bloodshed. So, uh. But then we also learned in Leviticus that the extent of our sin, that we, we learned that, there is that, that we should understand the extent of our sin. We should not take that lightly. It's why we as a church, we spend time, as you heard, heard us pray, or heard me pray earlier, publicly repenting to God for our sin. Like That should be a part of, of our practice as a people and as individuals. We, and that's why we sing songs that help us understand the extent of our sin. Those are not always the most exciting things to sing about, but... It's kind of hard to talk about the mercy and graciousness of God until we understand just how much sin He had to overcome in His graciousness and mercy to save us. So understanding the extent of our sin is is crucial. Then we saw in Leviticus God's provision for our sin. God provided a means of reconciliation for the people's sin during that day. And again, another theme of holiness and obedience. We see that in Leviticus. Then as we get to Numbers, we see that God, We saw that God prepares His people. And God continues to work in His people. Yet, what we see though is as God continues to work in His people, His people still continue to rebel. Even amidst the great displays of God's mercy and kindness on, re- on delivering them from Egypt, you still see that the people rebel. So what happens? God punishes them. God punishes them. It's where the wilderness, where they get to the edge of the, the promised land. And, and they say, we're not going to go in. We don't trust you, God. You're not going to give us the land. We can't handle it. And they say, so God says, all right, here's your punishment. Wander in the wilderness until an entire generation of you dies off. Then I will deliver you back to the promised land. So God punishes them. And yet we see, and the big theme we saw in Numbers is that God perseveres with His people. And I I hope that's an encouragement even as you think about this this morning that we worship a God who perseveres with His people. This is a God who should have said to hell with His people early, very early on. He had no reason to continue and yet God has persevered with His people and continues to persevere with His people even to today. So, As we get to the end of Numbers and the beginning of Deuteronomy and all throughout Deuteronomy, here we have God's people standing at the edge of the promised land. About to walk into the promised land. Uh, I mean, years and years and years of history have passed by. Years and years of God's perseverance has passed by. And they stand at the edge of the promised land having a generation just died off. And here in Deuteronomy... Deuteronomy is basically the last three speeches that Moses gave the nation of Israel as they stood across the Jordan River preparing to enter into the Promised Land. So this is, this is not covering a, a large amount of time. These are three speeches Moses giving to the people as they stand there, having waited hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before entering into the promised land. You go, well, what's so important about the promised land? It's not the fact that it's milk and honey, although that was certainly a blessing. But if you trace the theme of God's kingdom throughout Scripture, you see that it is about God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So the idea of being in God's place in God's promised land is crucial. It's crucial for us today, too. That one day we will be in God's promised land. We're not necessarily waiting for, uh, you know, this to take over this real estate land. I think it's a it's a more spiritual reality now. But but at this point, they stand at the edge of the land, waiting to go in. And Moses says these final words to the people of God. Deuteronomy basically means the second copy of the law. It's, a, it's another copy. It was so important that God's people, particularly God's kings, God's leaders, to know the law, that He wanted them to write it down again. There are some gems in Deuteronomy. This repetition of the law means that we see the Ten Commandments repeated in Deuteronomy. I read to you from chapter 6. Verse 4 and 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. And then, as parents, we talk a lot about this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and, and they shall be as frontlets, between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. I wonder how many of us are that diligent about the words of God, that we would do such things as talk about them with our kids when they rise and when they go to sleep, and that we would write them on on our doors and between our eyes. and, And then Deuteronomy 29 talks about the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. There's lots of of gems in the book of Deuteronomy. But I think we can summarize the entire book of Deuteronomy in two statements. Statement number one, summarizing Deuteronomy, is that God chooses his people. God chooses his people. And then the second thing we see in Deuteronomy as a summary statement, is that God's people must choose Him. God's people must choose Him. God chooses His people, and secondly, and subsequently, I would say as well, God's people must choose Him. Now today, we're just going to take a look at that first statement, that God chooses His people. I know the idea of God choosing people is pretty controversial, but when we get to Deuteronomy, Numbers, Exodus, there's just no question that God chooses His people. So today we're going to look at the main idea of Deuteronomy, that God chooses His people. He clearly is working among some people and has chosen not to work among other people. Now, this idea of God choosing people, as far as renovation is concerned, we talk about this a lot. Seems pretty simple, I think. The problem, though, is that what's interesting, if you kind of survey church landscape today, we tend to talk, I, I put an arbitrary number in here 98% of the time, just a made up statistic. I just, most of the time, I hear and see churches talking about man choosing God. Now, I think that's an important topic to talk about, but the Bible starts with and emphasizes the choosing of God and His people. So why would we spend 98% or whatever, majority of the time, talking about man choosing God when the Bible, I believe, if I'm understanding the Bible rightly, emphasizes the fact that God first chooses His people. In Genesis, God chooses some and doesn't choose others. I mean, it's, it's a theme. It's, it happens time and time again. Jacob, and not Esau. What? In Exodus, God chooses some and doesn't choose others, and so on. So God chooses His people. This, it, it, it happens, and, and we, have to, so we have to deal with it. How do we understand it? So we want to seek to understand this better this morning, and we're going to do this by asking a handful of questions concerning Deuteronomy. A handful of questions. The first question we're going to ask is this. Who is this God who chooses? Who is this God who chooses? I think the first thing about this God who chooses, who is this God who chooses, is first of all is that He's the only true God. So again, if we're talking how, how are we working through the text, what we see, what I believe we see in Deuteronomy is that he's the only true God. The God who chooses, Deuteronomy shows us, is that he's the only true God. This is the one true God. There is no other God. Now certainly there are lowercase g gods that we all worship and that the rest of the world worships, but there's only one uppercase g God. There is no other. So at the end of Moses' first speech... He reminds the people that the great acts of God performed in their midst during the exodus show His uniqueness. They show that He's the, the only one. That He alone is God. We, so let's look at that. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32-39. through He says, For ask now of the days that are past, again verse 32, which were before you since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask From one end of the heaven to the other, whether such a great thing as this has ever happened or was ever heard of. Did any people ever hear the voice of God speaking out of the midst of the fire as you have heard and still live? Or has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand, and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? To you it was shown that you might know that the Lord is God. There is no other besides him. "'Out of heaven he let you hear his voice "'that he might discipline you. "'And on earth he let you see his great fire "'and you heard his words out of the midst of the fire.' And because he loved your fathers and chose your offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, driving out before you nations greater and mightier than you to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance as it is this day. Know therefore today and lay it to your heart that the Lord is God in heaven above and on the earth beneath. There is no other. There is no other God. Moses says to the people of God, there is no other God. Who has done these things? What other God has done these things? The book is covered with references to God's uniqueness. Deuteronomy 7 verse 21 says, You shall not be in dread of them, for the Lord your God is in your midst, a great and awesome God. Deuteronomy 32 39, see now that I, even I, am He, and there is no God besides me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. These are God's words. Show His uniqueness. Now, we live today in a very pluralistic society, a culture where there are many gods, right? I think this is certainly true of the world, but I also think it's true in the church. I want you to write down, if you have a piece of paper right now, if not, just keep it up here. I want you to write down your top two competing gods in your life. So certainly it should be uppercase G, God. What in your heart and your mind competes to be God in your life? Write the two down. You may go I don't I don't I don't know. What tends to control you? Besides the Holy Spirit and the word of God. What tends to determine the way you feel? What tends to impact the way you react? What tends to drive your emotions? What tends to cause you to lose hope? There's to be some diagnostic questions to ask of what other God is there in my life that's competing with the God. So we can talk all day long about how the rest of the world worships their gods and so on and so forth. But but we need to talk for a moment about how we worship our own gods as well. We all have golden calves that we pull out of the closet multiple times a day. Like what John Calvin said, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Our nature is to create idols. We do this. So Christian, they ask the question, is there one true God in your life? Is there one true God in your life? Is that the God you worship? Is that the God you worship most? Are you seeking to root out other gods that you are worshiping daily? If you're not a follower of Christ or unsure if you're a follower of Christ, understand that you are and were created to worship. You will worship something. It's a matter of whether you're worshiping the right thing. So, this God who chooses, we see in Deuteronomy, He's the only true God. The second thing we see about this God who chooses is that He is the only sovereign God. Again, this is a kind of a repetitious theme that we've seen throughout the entire Pentateuch or the Torah. <clears throat> but we see again that He's the only sovereign God. This is very important. I think the sovereignty of God, the only true God, we see this time and time again all throughout Scripture. Because I think it's a very important thing. This is one of the things that makes God worthy of worship, is that He's the only sovereign God. Now, Moses does this in the book of Deuteronomy, as we'll see in a moment, as a discouragement from prideful tendencies. The people, just like we do today, have a prideful tendency. The beauty here is that Moses is talking about the sovereignty of God in such a way to discourage these prideful tendencies, both for the people then and, of course, for us today As the people of God, because what's happening, as the people of God now, again, once again in their history, begin to experience success over their adversaries, he does not, Moses does not, God does not want them to view themselves as their own saviors. So as we begin to overcome these adversaries in their lives, just like we have adversaries in our lives, they just may not look like a, a warring group of people ready to kill us, they might look more like that sin that we struggle with each day, that God that we worship, that is an adversary to overcome, that when we overcome those, that when the people of God overcome them, that He does not want them to view themselves as, the one, as their saviors, but to view God alone as the one who saves. Deuteronomy seven, eighteen, the second half of verse 18 says, "...you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and to all Egypt." The great trials that your eyes saw, the signs, the wonders, the mighty hand and the outstretched arm by which your Lord God brought you out, so will the Lord your God do to all the peoples of whom you are afraid. We just see that God, that Moses is reminding the people, look, don't get confident in yourself. Build in confidence in God. There's danger when we grow in confidence of ourselves. That, that's why, like today, this is a, this might be a, a rabbit trail or a deer trail. Uh, like uh, we talk about, well, that person just needs a lot of self confidence. No, 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 no. We don't need. That's the last thing we need is self confidence. We need confidence in God. That's what we need. Moses is saying, no, you don't need confidence in yourself. You need confidence in God. God is worthy of our confidence but so we see him discouraging their prideful tendencies we also see that he's as a, the only sovereign god that it's it's about the timing of god that his timing matters the people should expect god's sovereignty to be displayed even by the pace at which they defeat their enemies and overtake the land that they should expect god's sovereignty displayed in the timing of everything. Deuteronomy 7, verse 22 says, The Lord your God will clear away these nations before you little by little. You may not make an end of them at once, lest the wild beasts grow too numerous numerous for you. So God has a purpose in everything, including the timing in which He fulfills His promises. I mean, what, man, there's so many implications of that for us today, right? The timing of God in which He's fulfilling His promises in our lives. So Moses so, we've got the, the discouragement from prideful tendencies, the timing of God. Moses also paints, points out the difficulty of the challenges that the people will face ahead. He reminds the people of their inadequacy to accomplish the task. I mean, how many times do we have to be reminded of our inadequacy to accomplish the task? He does this in order to make God's supremacy clear. You see, the battle in our heart is we want our supremacy to be clear to the rest of the world and to ourselves. We want our control of the situation to be displayed for our glory, not God's glory. Verse Chapter 11, verse 23 says, The Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will dispossess nations larger and stronger than you. 28, verse 15 says, Israel's fate lies in the hands of God. Chapter 2, verse 30, this is the God who hardens the hearts of kings and pharaohs. Chapter 13, verse 3, he reigns over the lying lips of false prophets. Chapter 29, verse 4, he gives and, and takes away understanding from the minds of his people. Chapter 31, this God is sovereign and remembering this fact will help his people to trust him. These are just examples of Moses pointing to his people, to God's people, about the challenges that come ahead. So Christians, here's my question. How easy is it to look at your journey up to this point and how you got to this point in your journey, in your life, walk with Christ, and subsequently grow in confidence in self? How easy is that? I mean, just think about right now What happens to your confidence when you think about your journey with Christ? Wow, look what I've done. Moses would remind us that it is God alone who saves. That it's God alone who has continued saving you. And he would work out that, he would persevere alongside of your rebellion. Because none of us got saved and lived perfectly after that, right? Right. Moses would remind us that it's God alone who saves. It's easy to become confident in self and then take license in different areas of our lives or fail to hear, heed exhortation in different areas of our lives. That's, that's really easy for us to do. Have you ever met someone, they're an expert in one thing, and because they're an expert in that, they're an expert in everything else? Anybody ever met? So because they're really good at this, they're good at everything. So because I don't do this sin in my life, that means I got everything else good and don't need to listen to exhortation and everything else, right? Nah. It's easy to become confident in self. So as you consider the good things in your life, you must attribute them to God's hand. He alone saves And every blessing comes from a sovereign God, right? I mean, we understand that. I would encourage us to be careful how we define blessing. That's another subject for another time. But every good blessing comes from God. We just tend to define blessing as that, that which makes us feel good. And that can be sinful, right? So let's continue asking these questions. So who is this God who chooses? The next question is this. Why did he choose the people that he chose? Why did he choose the people that he chose? It's a good question, I think. First of all, let's talk about the reasons that God does not give for choosing the people. The first thing we're talking about is the reasons that God, the reasons that God does not give for choosing his people. I mean, it doesn't take long as we begin to get into Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It doesn't take long to ask the question of why these people? Like, God, seriously? Are these are the ones you chose. Like, they're crazy. They're foolish. They're rebellious. Should remind us a lot of ourselves. Like, like, why? Let me read to you Deuteronomy chapter 9, 4 through 6. It says this, Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, all right, listen, listen, do not say, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the world that the Lord swore... Sorry, confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a what? A stubborn people. Wow. We could preach that today, right? He tells us three times, and three times. It's not because of your righteousness. So why did God choose these people? It wasn't because of their righteousness. Deuteronomy does a fine job of giving God's people an accurate description of themselves and of God. We need this today. We need an accurate picture of ourselves today. Part of the reason why we don't interact well with each other, we don't reflect the character of God, and and we don't live right with God, is because we don't understand the accurate picture of ourselves. We want to define the picture the way we want to define the picture, and we don't let the Scriptures or the Word of God show us what is the reality concerning ourselves. But Deuteronomy tells the people, this is the reality concerning yourself. The people of God will be blessed, but it will not be because they deserve it. They will receive blessing because God is merciful and has chosen to show them blessing. So God does not choose them because of their earning or deserving it. But what is the reason that God gives for choosing them? So why does God choose? What's the reason for God's choosing of these people? Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37 through 38. Listen to this. Listen to these words. And because... He loved your fathers and chose their offspring after them and brought you out of Egypt with his own presence by his great power, therefore are driving out before you nations, greater and mightier to bring you in, to give you their land for an inheritance at this day. He says it's because he loves them. So you say, all right, so God loves these people. So that means there has to be something special about them, right? Like, you love your kids because there's something special about them. Right? What is that something special? The color of their hair, right? No, no, they're your kids, right? They're your kids. You love them because they're your kids. So there's got to be something special about God's people. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 7. A couple chapters later, verse 6. the king of Egypt. God does not choose, again, we're here, God does not choose His people because they're particularly special, because they're greater in number, because they're more righteous than anybody else. He chooses them not because of their numerical strength, but He chooses them because He has set His love on His people. He chose to. It wasn't because they were particularly special people. Matter of fact, Deuteronomy says... It's quite the opposite. See, during this time, if there was a reason for God to choose, like understanding the culture at this time, the idea of being a few people was terrible. That wouldn't have been a good thing for a big God to choose a little people. That wouldn't be. Like, it would be a, a big God would choose these people because they're a great and mighty nation. I mean, that, that was the culture during this day. So the fact that God, what, what Moses is saying here. What God is saying is the fact that God would choose these weak, feeble, few in number people goes against the grain. Like that's not a good thing. A great mighty God doesn't choose a very small fraction of people. He chooses the big crowd. So He chooses them because He loves them. So Christians, why did God choose to save you? Let's ask this question. Why did God choose to save you? If you are a follower of Christ, you've experienced the redemption of God through the work of Jesus Christ. Was it because you were in the right family? Was it because God knew you would say the salvation prayer when you were given the chance? Was it because He knew you would do great things for the kingdom? Deuteronomy would say, no, it's not because of any of those things. He chose you because He loves you. I mean, just, just let's ask for just a second, guys. How, how many times do we puff up our chest and say, I know what God chose me, right? I got this. I mean, I do that probably weekly, at least if not daily. Oh yeah, God, you you need me, right? You chose me because you knew these great things would happen, right? No. Oh. Now I'm I'm implying here, and, and it's implied in Deuteronomy that. That God loves these people with a different love than He has for the rest of the world, although He does love the rest of the world. But there's a unique love. That's why God chose to save you. He has chosen to say, I love you and want to redeem you. Now, we don't know who God has chosen. We don't know that. But God chose these people. And Christian, today, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it's because God loves you. And if you're not a follower of Christ today, but you're kind of working through that and going, what does that mean to be a follower of Christ? Then then there's probably a good chance that God loves you just as he loves these people and he is drawing your heart to himself and he is pulling you in saying, look, child, I have died on the cross for you and I love you. Now, next question, why does God continue to persevere us in our salvation? Is it because we don't smoke, drink, or cuss? Is it because we're a member of the right church? Because we pray enough each week? No, again, it's because of God's love for you as His child. And a love that can only be poured out on you through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ. I just want to say to you, church, like that's a God who's worthy of worship. Right? That's a God that we can delight in. And we can say, God, I love you, too. Right? I mean, think about this as a parent. Like, You know, I know that my son, like my oldest son, Chapman, does not understand the depth of what the word love means. The depth of the, but, but you know what? In his actions towards me as his father, I can tell his affection. For me, his love for me. He may not be able to give me the five definitions of the word love and, and talk about agape love or you know he may not be able to do that. But but I can see in his heart there's an affection for his father, there's a love for his father. God has chosen, he has that affection for his children that he has redeemed and he is in the process of saving. And that is a God that's worthy of our worship. I hope that that's delightful. And I hope when you, when you sit down, we all have different pictures of like, how we define God, right? For some of us, he's that mean judge. And for others, he's, he's grandpa, gives us everything we want when we, when we need something. And he is our Heavenly Father, and he does delight in our delighting in him, right? So, so again, these questions. Why does, who is this God who chooses why did he choose the people that he chose? And then the last question for this morning is this. What does his chosen people receive? Like, what does it mean to be chosen? What does it mean to be God's people? What do, they, what do we get? What did the people here in Deuteronomy, what did they get as God's people? The first thing they got was the law. These are not necessarily in any particular order, but the, the big thing that we see that they get was the law. The most obvious gift that the people get is God's law. In Deuteronomy 4-6, through we see a summary of the law. Again, Deuteronomy 5 presents the Ten Commandments for a second time. I mean, the whole book of of Deuteronomy is a re-presentation of the law. It's a re-giving of the law just before they're getting to enter the Promised Land. And God is reminding His people of His rule before bringing them into his place. Again, God's people, under God's rule and God's place. So he's reminding the people, his people, getting ready to enter into God's place, he's reminding them of his rule. What does it mean to live under God's law? We see in Deuteronomy that the law should be central to God's people. Now, I know there's a whole other discussion of how do we understand the law from a New Testament perspective. I, I got that, and we'll flesh that out later. But Still, though, the law serves a great purpose for us today. It's not just, well, that's what they did in the Old Testament, and we got Jesus, so forget all that stuff. It's all grace, right? Well, it is all grace. It's all grace that we live by the law. God's law should be central among His people. The the people are commanded to write the law upon easily visible, large stones once they cross the Jordan into the promised land. You can look at that in chapter 27, verse 8. God wants the law to be read aloud to the people every seven years. Could you imagine doing that? You want to do that sometime? We'll just sit down, take ten hours, and we'll just read through the first five books of the Bible, right? You want to do that? Anybody game for that? There's probably a reason why he said every seven years, right? They're like, We're going to bring the tab, you know, bring it in in a wagon. We're going to read through all of this, right? Maybe we should do that sometime. Maybe we will. That would be fun. We're going to pick the slowest reader in the church, Robbie, Robbie, (laughs) and and let him do the reading, okay? (laughs) And we're going to hire Starbucks for the evening. I mean the week. My bad. What else is? What else is God's? I mean, I mean, I I know we like we like shun away, like we we shy away from the law and all the law, and I, and I know what Galatians says about the law. I got that in Romans, but like we just go, oh, the law is such a bad thing. But God, it's God's instruction to His people. It's God saying, like, this is how you be my people. I love you so much. I'm going to help you with this. I'm going to give you instruction. Okay what else does he give his people? He gives them descendants. I and mean, It might be something we take for granted because we pop out babies all the time, but particularly, you know, renovation. Uh, but like, he gives his people descendants. What a glorious thing. He gives his people many descendants. He told Abraham to count the stars. That will be your descendants. Here in Deuteronomy, we read, chapter 10, verse 22, Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. I mean, understand how many thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people there are now as God's people when they began as 70 people back in Egypt. Wow. Wow. Brian's back there, isn't he? Uh Uh-huh. I'm gonna tell him stop yelling. What else does he give his people? He gives his people land. He gives his people land. God promised them a land a long time ago. Genesis 12. Right? Go back and read Genesis 12. Now here in Deuteronomy, they stand on the edge of seeing that promise fulfilled. Deuteronomy 11, verse 10 through 12 says this, For the land that you are entering to take possession of, it's not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, and a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it, from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. See the distinction between the land that they were at in Egypt and now the land that God had promised them. See the distinction. He's giving his people land. But remember, you got to go back to the garden. What was the garden like? This is is a a reflection of what that garden was like, and and it's just simply a picture, a physical picture of the reality that we'll have once we're in heaven with Christ. It'll be a land that we... Um, thorns and thistles to hurt our hands. So what else is He giving? The last thing that He gives them, this, those are other things, but that we're going to talk about this morning, the last thing is that He gives them His own presence. God gives His people His own presence. And I don't mean Christmas presents. I mean God dwelling with His people. The most important thing that God gives His chosen people is Himself. Save the best for last. All throughout Deuteronomy, you read about sacrifices and festivals held in the presence of the Lord. Right? They're they're celebrating and sacrificing. They're doing all of this in the presence of God. The Lord is also present with His people through the tabernacle, the cloudy pillar over it, the Ark of the Covenant within it. These objects remind the people that God Himself is with them in a very special way. Moses says to the people in Deuteronomy 4, verse 5-8, through See, I have taught you statutes and rules as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely, listen to this, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? And he says this, whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? You know, one of the reasons why the church in America is so pathetic is the presence of God is not with them. Cross-denominations. I'm not talking about a particular denomination. Deuteronomy 31, you look at this later, Moses publicly then commissions Joshua to succeed him and says twice to the people in chapter 31, first to the people and then to Joshua he says this the lord your god goes with you he will never leave you nor forsake you right when god chooses a people above all he gives them himself he gives a people himself what god does that god promises to dwell with them in the land and this is far more important than inheriting even the land itself. That's why I, I believe that in the future that the land that we will inherit is in Christ, in Christ Himself. It's no, we're not getting no real estate in this deal, okay? We get Jesus. And that's far more important than some piece of real estate. So I think this is just pointing... The whole overtaking the land is just pointing to a greater reality that's in Jesus Christ. Christians, we're coming to a close here. Christians, God's giving of Himself is the greatest gift he could ever give to us. Do you believe that? Do you let me ask you this. Do you live like you believe that? You see, many of us are not so much in danger of falling into worldly, obvious sins like adultery and murder, although those are definitely potentials. Many of us are more in danger of worshiping the gifts of the giver. A competing God. All of his gifts are meant to point us to him. If it tastes good, then it only tastes, then only a taste of what is good there is of God is from God if it tastes good it's from God it's to point you to God God is the one that should be treasured in our hearts now most of us would say that God is the only true God in our lives but then again we would, I must ask the question what is it that controls you other than God what is it that you bow down before other than God I'd encourage you to write that question down ask that this week what is it that your heart bows down before other than god last question we'll ask this morning is this and it's not a main question it's more of an implication how do we become christians how do we become christians so how do we become god's people how do we become god's chosen people this is not a tag on the end of the sermon. This is, this is from Deuteronomy. How do we become God's people? Now clearly, Scripture, and we don't have time to do this today, but clearly, Scripture talks about the responsibility of man in exercising repentance and faith in God. We must repent of our sins, place faith in God. But the Bible does not start here, nor does I think it emphasize here. It starts with God choosing His people. If you were ever proud of the fact that you were a follower of Jesus... You're missing the point. Remember, He chose you first. Like There should be no such thing as a prideful Christian. There just shouldn't be. Now, I struggle with pride all the time. I I got that. But that, that shouldn't be the case. I didn't earn what God has given to me. There should also be nothing... There should be no such thing as an anxious Christian. Why? Because in God's choosing, He also keeps. And if He can choose, He can keep. If He has the sovereignty to save you, then He certainly has the sovereignty to take care of your bills. Okay? I mean, mean, mom and dad, if He has the sovereignty to redeem your wicked heart, then He surely can take care of your kids. Completely. Like, not just in salvation, but everything else too, right? As we should be people full of gratitude and people full of hope because of the fact that God chooses. You see, the Israelites were taking land, and in the process, God, what was He doing? He was taking their heart, right? He's, they're taking land, and God's saying, I'm grabbing your heart more and more all along the way. We don't have land to take. Well, I guess we did talk about buying real estate earlier. But we don't have land to take, and that's not the ultimate goal, right? But we have real estate in our hearts that belongs to God. We have land in our hearts that belongs to God. The Christian journey is not first and foremost about externally obeying the law, but instead is first and foremost about a heart that is entirely given to the delighting in the King. And delighting in God. This heart that delights in God will seek to know the law and to live by the law. If you're not a follower of Christ, if you don't, or if you're confused, am I, am I not? I just want to encourage you that uh, even the very fact that you're thinking through that is likely God drawing your heart. It's God who has spurred even the questioning of that. Am I really a follower of Jesus? And that very may, very, may very well be the love of God ripping your heart out of darkness. Ripping your heart from delighting in things that will leave you empty ultimately to delight in He who can satisfy you for all of eternity. Right? Jesus, the woman at the well, He sits there and He says, I give you what? A water that you will never thirst again. So how, how, do I, how do I become a follower of Christ? It's re- repent of our sins and place our faith in Him. Faith in what? Faith in Jesus as the one who paid the price for those sins before a holy God. And then follow Christ as your King, as your Lord. So, God chooses His people. Why? Why? Why does God choose his people? What can we see in Deuteronomy as to why God chooses his people? I think what we see is that God chooses his people so that he might be the sole occupier of the space in their lives that we call our hearts. That he would occupy the minds of his people and he would occupy the affections of his people. That he would dwell in their presence. Why does God choose a people? So that amongst His creation, He might dwell in them. And today, unlike this time, He doesn't dwell in a tent. He dwells in the blood-covered hearts and minds of His people today. I want to pray for us. We'll worship and reflect on this. Father, thank You that, um, that we can call You Father. Father, thank you that you've given us your law. Father, thank you that you've given us guidance on how to be your people. Father, I pray that as we seek to be your people, Father, I pray that, that we would delight in your love and delight in your goodness to us and Father, we, just, we would understand the reality of who we are so that we might understand more fully the grace and mercy that you've shown us. And Father, I pray, I beg you that if there's anyone here today that does not know you as their Savior, that has not repented and placed their faith in you, that and Father, they would do that right now. That, that, that they just quietly in their hearts would say, Father, God, save me. Save me from my sin. I give myself to you today. And Father, if there's anyone who maybe even just did that just now, or Father, these next few moments just cries out to you, Father, I pray that that they would um, find refuge in this place as a church, that they would tell someone about that decision, or ask someone if they have more questions about that That. And Father, we as a body of believers could help them grow as a disciple of Jesus. To know his word. And Father, just as we worship you in these next few moments, I pray that you would be glorified in this mist. Father, that you would be honored. And Father, I love you. And it's in Jesus' name, amen. Would you all stand with us as we sing?